is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from coaches, leaders in the military, leaders in business, and leaders in communities across this great country. And this edition is with Bill Koch, whose company Oxbow Carbon has over 1,200 employees and $4 billion in annual revenue. Bill has also led America to a victory in the world's premier sailing competition, the America's Cup, and did it on his first try. But today he brings us some formational leadership stories from his younger days starting at his high school, Culver Academy. At Culver, you know, my first year, I, you know, I got beat up a lot and rassed a lot. Uh, and when I was at Culver, some of the advisors told me that I couldn't get into MIT. <laughs> and then when I got into MIT, I said, well, you know, you're at the bottom of the class. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't think you'll make it. <laughs> and then I found out that if I wanted to do well, uh, mainly to impress my father, as well as mainly to develop my own skills and my own accomplishments. So I just would work very, very hard. Uh, you know, if I had to go to the bathroom, I'd take a, a book with me. <laughs> so I worked really hard. And then I graduated with top honors and then got my doctorate's degree from it. And I've always been seemed to be told that I can't do something. <laughs> you know, being harassed and told I was dumb, an idiot, some other things. So that has become a big challenge for me. I mean, it, it can have two effects. Either you stay a nerd the rest of your life or an idiot the rest of your life, or you uh, take advantage of it. In fact, you know, I probably have a little OCD. <laughs> and I looked at it and said, well, that could either kill me or I could use it to an advantage. So I used it to work very hard. <laughs> and surprisingly, I got more honors than all my brothers put together. <laughs> we just made a couple of them pissed. But I um, wanted to play basketball. I thought the sport was terrific. But in our freshman year, the varsity only won one game. But we as freshmen couldn't play on the varsity in those days. Now they can, then you couldn't. And we were a bunch of nerds. And MIT went out and got this one coach from Methuen High School. It was a northern mill town that was dying in northern Massachusetts. And he had the longest winning record of any high school in the country. So MIT recruited him. And when we became sophomores and were playing on the varsity, we also won only one game. And the uh, coach, you know, took a while to learn out the MIT system, to <laughs> learn what nerds we are <laughs> and what, uh, how clumsy and awkward we were. So I wanted to play more on the varsity, so I went up and went to a summer camp that he had so I could practice all summer. And also that avoided me going out and working on the ranch. <laughs> and I could possibly chase girls, <laughs> even though it was in, in Methuen. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he, he told me he had a, a new plan. 
and he came up with a new play. But he came up with only one play because he said we weren't smart enough to learn more than one. <laughs> These nerds from MIT. And he was also uh, afraid that if, if uh, we all had different plays, we'd get too confused. And then he just drilled us over and over and over in that same play so we could do it in our sleep. So it was you know, habitual. Then he started giving us variations off the play, which was great. But the most powerful thing he did was that he put people in the right spots to minimize their weakness and maximize their strengths. And he defined jobs. You know, and he said, okay, your, your job is to bring up the ball and dribble it, and dribble it up and set up a play. And then your job is to get rebounds and block shots and put up pivots. And then he said to another guy, all right, your job is to go after the best shooter on the other side <laughs> and rough him up a little bit. But he made it very succinct. Well, anyway, in our junior year, we won over half our games. Our senior year, we had the longest winning streak in the country and the least points scored against us. And, and so I looked at that and said, that's a, you know, and I sat on the damn bench, <laughs> but it was terrific. I, I learned it because that was one of the best lessons I made, ever learned at MIT. How important teamwork is and focus. And well, the guy also told us, you guys are winners. You know, if you think you're gonna lose, you will lose. You know, if you think you're going to win, at least you have a 50-50 chance of winning. And I said, that's terrific, you know? And he said, you work all work together. I mean, it's remarkable because not one of us could have even joined, got in any other college. In fact, we probably wouldn't even made intramural teams. <laughs> and, and relying upon your teammates, you know? And, not be a star. I think uh, Ren Arbuck said, any of you guys on the pro team, you can, if you want to be a superstar, any one of you can score, score 30 points a night. But if you do, we're going to lose. And instead, we got to work as a team. And if we win, then we're all heroes. And that's so true. And Red Auerbach is one of my heroes, one of my dad's heroes. My dad was my coach. I was a point guard on an all-state team. And my goodness, learned a lot of these lessons from my coach and a coach named Bobby Knight, who I spent some time with in the most foundational parts of my life. And it was all about these lessons, about knowing your job, being accountable to the job, too. If your job's to rebound and block out that guy, rebound and block out that guy. And your teammates are depending on you. And what lessons learned. And it's amazing, right? This, this industrialist, this businessman, he's talking about college and college sports. And this is why sports is so important for so many people, because where else do we get these lessons taught? Bill Koch's story, his leadership story, and a coach's story, and the impact that man had on those boys who turned into men, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer story, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, and they are working hard every day to help small business owners grow their businesses with a variety of work in public policy and outreach. And now it's time for a story of grit and perseverance, brought to us by our very own Joey Cortez. Rob Mitchell is one of the most accomplished financial advisors in the country. He helps people invest their money to make them more secure and more independent, a story he is all too familiar with. Now, Rob is an accomplished businessman, but his childhood was one of poverty, neglect, and abandonment. My father worked, he had a master's in journalism, I believe, and he worked helping companies with their sales brochures and, and sales catalogs back in the 50s. And my mother would oftentimes just disappear for hours on end or half a day on end, and sometimes days on end. And he'd come home and find me in the crib and soiled. And when she did show up, she'd be drunk. And, you know, obviously he's distraught because his little boy's been left all by himself. He's not been fed. He's not been changed. She's not giving him any explanation where she's been, what she's been doing. And eventually the stress of it caused him to start drinking. And eventually he just left and went back to his home in Atlanta trying to sort things out and put a gun to his head in the basement of his parents' house and tried to commit suicide. He failed, but it made him a walking vegetable. For the next 26 years, he lived in Allen Mental Hospital in Milledgeville, Georgia, and had to wear diapers, even though he had a high school degree, college degree, and a master's degree. Three months after his failed suicide attempt, my mother drug me by train from Chicago to a little town called Princeton, Illinois, and um, abandoned me at the Covenant Children's Home. People don't think three-year-olds can remember much, but kids like us, kids in crisis, when we have that moment when the particularly bad abuse happens, we either block it out and never remember or we never forget. And I, I don't forget that day, even though I was only a little over three. There was snow on the sidewalks. My mother was dragging me from the train station five blocks. I was cold. I was scared. Something was wrong. I'm whimpering. My mother's yelling at me, shut up, Robbie, shut up. She takes me to this great big three-story building, commands me to play with blocks with a strange boy, and I reach for a block and he steals it. I reach for a block and he steals it. I turn to my mother for help and she's gone. She didn't hug me. She didn't kiss me. She didn't tell me she loved me. She's just gone. And a woman whose name and face I don't remember says, Robbie, your mother's sick. She's taking the train back to Chicago. She'll come get you when she's well. And I remember running to the nearest door, not even knowing where it goes. And I'm only three anyway. I can't even reach the handle. And this woman says, quit crying or I'll spank you. And I can't quit crying. My mother has abandoned me. And the strange woman picks me up and spanks me over and over and over again. Until the pain of being spanked is worse than the pain of being abandoned. That night I wet my bed and she spanks me again. But as punishment puts two brown rubber sheets on the bed, makes me lie between them all day long. And they're hot, and they squeak when I move. And I still remember the voices of the strange little boys in the strange place my mother's abandoned me, laughing, because the new kid's a pee-pee baby. And then my memories go blank. Abandoned, but not completely alone. Rob still had a grandmother, Gigi. His mother's mother, 
who still cared a great deal for Robbie. When my mother abandoned me, she didn't tell Gigi where I was, which drove her pretty batty. But eventually Gigi found out where I was, and I was about a two-hour train ride. So from Gigi's apartment, she would get up, take three buses to downtown Chicago, then a two-hour train ride to Little Princeton, Illinois, and then walk five blocks to the Covenant Children's Home. She would do that every Saturday for years, and then have to leave about three o'clock and do the reverse, take walk five blocks to the train station, take the train two hours, couple of buses home. So, I mean, it was, it was a good 16-hour day. And she, she did that for years and years and years. She would walk with me in the playground, and she'd watch me play and talk to the other kids. And then we would usually walk um, about five blocks to just a small diner. We would order something to eat and drink and dessert. But Gigi only drank coffee. And it took me several years to realize she didn't have enough money to order lunch for herself. So she only ordered coffee. And she would skip a meal and not eat just so she could buy my lunch. So that was the kind of love that Gigi had for me. A much needed break from the children's home. A break that little Robbie wished was permanent. She'd kneel down and hug me and kiss me and, and remind me how much she loved me and that God loved me. And she'd start to cry and hold it back and then she'd walk away and I'd stand outside the front of the home and watch her until she disappeared from sight. And that was pretty much a usual Saturday. When I was a little kid, I used to just cry and cry, take me with you, please take me with you. You know, I won't eat much, I'll behave. But she didn't know how to explain it to me at the time. She didn't want me in Chicago as a latchkey kid, especially as a three-year-old. She couldn't go to work and leave a three-year-old in an apartment by himself. And then even going to school, I mean, she going to let a six-year-old go to school by himself? Um, and then as I got older as a teenager, she just felt that wasn't safe, but she had to work. And then when my mother, who was in and out of lockdown psychiatric wards, lived in the streets of Chicago, um, alcohol, drug addiction, I don't know if she prostituted herself. I never asked. I think Gigi just looked at the whole situation and felt I was safer at the children's home than I was living with her. And I came to understand that. So in my life, Gigi was never a villain. It was one of the lights that I had that so few kids in the home had. Someone who truly loved me, who truly prayed for me, and, and came to visit. Many of the kids never had visitors, ever, even though they knew and I knew they had one or both parents alive. Um, they never came to visit them. The Mitchell side of the family is a whole nother story. The Mitchell side of the family in Atlanta was for the most part, filthy, stinking rich. Uncle Arnold owned the Oldsmobile Rolls-Royce car dealership. He's my grandfather's brother, so really a great uncle. Great uncle Tom owned Buick Jeep AMC dealership. Another great uncle in Florida who owned a Cadillac dealership. Another uncle, great uncle Warren, was a very, very successful insurance agency. So I had all these brothers of my grandfather who were multimillionaires in the 60s. Now, Uncle Arnold, who had the Oldsmobile Rolls-Royce dealership, when my mother kidnapped me. Robbie's mother had been in and out of various mental institutions for years. She had been a drug and alcohol abuser, manifested signs of paranoid schizophrenia, and had been placed in lockdown psychiatric wards five to seven times. One day, she came across a large sum of money 
from her father's life insurance after he passed away. His mother picked Robbie up from the children's home. She blew the money and had them living in squalor until the cops busted in one day to arrest them. Robbie was then sent to a horrifying juvenile delinquent center until the orphanage found him and brought him back. The state took away her legal custody of me and Uncle Arnold took over my legal guardian. But Atlanta still left me in the children's home instead of bringing me down with all that wealth and raising me. But they started flying me down every summer for two or three weeks. And I'm like, the first summer, I'm like, what am I doing in the children's home? You people have all this money. You belong to country clubs. You've got live-in servants. What am I doing in the children's home? I'm family. And they put me in the airplane and fly me back. Well, that first summer, I'm thinking, when's the call going to come that I'm moving to Atlanta? And it never came. It never came. And the next summer, they flew me down again. And I'm thinking, okay, this time I'm going to stay. And they flew me back and... I mean, at one point, I actually asked one of them, why, I, I love it here, can I stay? And they just kind of smiled and patted me on the head and didn't say anything. As I wrote in my book, the silence said it all. But it really wasn't until I was 19 years old that I finally asked the question, why did you not keep me? And that's when Uncle Arnold admitted, actually with tears in his eyes, that my father's mother, Pauline, my grandmother Mitchell, thought I was a social embarrassment to her country club cocktail party circuit. And uh, it was easier for her just to say that her grandson lived up in Chicago, and that's all she said about it. And you've been listening to Rob Mitchell's story, the story of childhood neglect and abandonment and alcoholic mother, the father who tried to kill himself, failed, but was forever incapacitated. And then, well, it just got worse. But for the love of one person, Gigi, that grandma who every Saturday visited Rob at that children's home he lived in, loved him, prayed for him. More of this remarkable American dream story. It does get better, folks. Rob Mitchell's story here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and Rob Mitchell's story. He's the author of the book, Castaway Kid, One Man's Search for Hope and Home. And you can find it on Amazon.com. Now let's get back to Rob with more of his story. And every place in every nation and every language I've ever talked to kids like me, I usually at some point in time ask a question. Are you safer here than whatever you call home? And virtually all the hands go up. And I follow that question with this question. How many of you want to go home? And all their hands go up. And then they start laughing because <laughs> they realize it's how ridiculous it is. Because at a children's home or an orphanage, you're not getting beaten. You're not getting sexually abused or verbally abused or psychologically abused or ignored or abandoned. Um, you got food to eat, clothes to wear. Uh, and whatever you call home, that's not the case. 
And so, but it's something primordial inside of all, all kids like us all over the world. We want to go home. But what we want to go home to is oftentimes a mythology. It's not reality. Like so many at-risk kids, I was drinking heavy and doing drugs, marijuana only, because uh, they wouldn't kick me out of the children's home for marijuana. They would other stuff and put me in someplace worse. But kids like us, we, we get drunk, we do drugs, we do inappropriate sex, and we cut ourselves to either feel something or to dull our pain or both. And I'm not saying that's right, but it is real. And kids all over the world that I talk to and say that to nod their head in affirmation because they know I know. So it, it, it was a real struggle. Now, one of the curious things that did happen, though, in 10th grade was by no design of my own, I started getting good grades. And I remember the principal calling me out of class to his office. And I'm thinking, I haven't done anything wrong today yet. And so I go in his office and he said, Robbie, I got a problem. I thought, well, I got a problem with you too. So let's hear yours first. I didn't say it, but that's what I was thinking. He said, your grades are good enough that it'll qualify you for the college track instead of the regular track. And I knew what was coming. I knew the butt. And I, I had come to hate butts. He said, but your anger issues are such, I'm having a hard time agreeing to let you go down that path. And I got really mad. And I said, don't you dare deny me the chance to go down the college path. I said, just, I'm a kid from the home, and that's your excuse to not let me have a chance. Let me fail, but give me a chance to fail. Don't hold me back just because I'm a kid from the home. He said, you've got one chance, boy. I said, fine. He says, fine. I remember walking out of there thinking, I might be smart enough for college? Really? The whole other stuff was just arrogance and bravado. I didn't know I was that smart enough to maybe go to college because we would talk about college now and then at the home, but it was pretty rare. And normally we'd say these three things. We really said them out loud. First off, there's no money. So this is stupid. And at the time, there really wasn't. There is today for foster kids to go to college, but at that time, there's no money. Um, when you left the home at 18 or when you finished high school, it was a one-way bus ticket to wherever you wanted to go, and good luck, kid. You're homeless. Um, the second thing we would say is that we're not smart enough to go to college. Kids like us aren't, are stupid. And we thought it, and we said it out loud, and we believed it. But third thing we'd say, and we thought it, we felt it, and we said it out loud, only good kids succeed in life. Kids like us don't win life. And so now a whole new war started within me because I was getting good grades and I was qualifying for the college track. And now I had to fight my own childhood and my own sense of self because everything about my childhood said I was just a kid from an orphanage. I couldn't possibly be smart enough to go to college. And where's the money going to come from anyway? And I don't deserve to succeed in life because if I did, I wouldn't be in an orphanage. And yet another part of me just kept going, come on, Robbie, come on. You can do this. You can be more than your childhood. Come on, Robbie. And it was just, it was a war. And, and I'm telling you, I did not win it in a day, a week, a month, or a year. It was a war that I probably didn't really win for years, even after I got my college degree and said, hey, I was smart enough to finish college. Not that I'm a genius, but just it was a war. So high school was all those conflicted social put-downs. A lot of kids feel anyway. It doesn't matter. Your kid from the home is just another button to push. And then 
getting a chance to go down the college track and succeeding, but still self-destructing through drugs and alcohol because you don't believe it's true. About the time I was 16, well, one of the things that I saw was so many of the boys older than me ended up dead or in prison by the time they were 21. Or you kind of fried their brains on drugs and, you know, they're just kind of permanently homeless types. And I thought, nobody taught us money management skills. We didn't know how to write checks or balance checkbooks. And so I thought, well, maybe if I have enough money when I walk out the door, I'll have a fighting chance here. So I started working really hard in Illinois. I detasseled corn. I mowed yards. I baled hay. I shoveled snow. I washed cars, worked in a lumber yard. And by 1970, I had saved $3,000. Now, in 1970, on inflation-adjusted numbers, that would buy you a brand-new Ford Mustang. That's how much money that was. And then I thought, man, I'm not making any money at the bank. So a lawyer agreed to be my custodian because you can't have a stock account until you're 18. And so one day when school was out, it was a business day, I took the train to Chicago to see Gigi, and we went down to his broker in downtown Chicago, and I said, what stock should I buy? And he said, well, buy more than one company, but start off buying stocks whose products you like. So I'm 16 years old in Illinois, and I'm a red-blooded heathen. I certainly wasn't a Christian at that time. So I bought two Illinois companies in 1970 whose products I liked, McDonald's and Playboy. And those were my first two stocks, and I've been at it ever since. One of the things that I enjoyed reading were books and stories about survivors like um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, people who survived prisoners of war camps in different wars. Uh, I really, really liked reading those books about survivors, people who, who made it against all odds, um, especially their escapes. And it kept encouraging me that if those people could survive uh, horrendous situations, then, then maybe there was hope for me. And then one of, one of the most impactful books on me in my childhood was actually Up From Slavery, by Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was born a slave here in America, never knew his father. I don't know if his mother knew his father and didn't tell him, or he, she didn't know either, I don't know. Slept on a dirt floor in a cabin, but ended up getting an education, ended up going to, at, at that time, they were you know, obviously segregation, so a segregated college. And there's a story you know, from slavery that always makes me chuckle, only because I can kind of relate to it. He'd never slept in a bed before, so he didn't know what to do. So he'd sleep on top of it, then he'd sleep under just the blanket, and finally one of the other kids had to show him how to actually sleep between the sheets. And on one hand, it sounds sad, and on the other hand, to me, it was kind of humorous because I thought, okay, dude, I've been in social situations where I had no clue, so I could relate to that. But Booker T., if a kid born a slave sleeping on a dirt floor could make it through college and being a leader like he was, and he had even more going against him because of the color of his skin, then maybe there's still hope for me. And you're listening to the voice of Rob Mitchell. And my goodness, those questions he asks those foster kids, are you safer here than wherever you call home? And almost all the hands go up, he said. How many of you want to go home? All the hands go up again. And then there's a self-recognition and a laughter. But he said it represented some primordial sense. We all want to go home. And all kids deserve a home. And my goodness, I love reading books about survivors. Kept encouraging me. So much of what's peddled for helping victims these days. 
is victimology rather than this survivor mentality. And this is what these kids know. We know it. We hear it over and over again in our storytelling. And my goodness, when he said to himself, I'm just not college material. I'm not smart enough to go to college. I'm in an orphanage. I don't deserve to succeed in life or I wouldn't be in an orphanage. Lots of internal conflict in this young man. Lots of inner conflict. When we come back, more of the life of Rob Mitchell. He's heading down the straight path. He's got some McDonald's stock and some Playboy stock. More of Rob Mitchell's life story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with the final installment of Rob Mitchell's story. Let's get back to Joey with the rest of this remarkable life story. Robbie was determined to go to college. While trying to figure out how to pay for it, an opportunity arose. The Mitchell side of the family offered Robbie a scholarship to pay for his tuition if he could keep up his grades. And so he did and ended up going to Guilford College in North Carolina, where he would meet Susan, a very special girl who would become his wife. She said many years later, someone asked her, you know, what did she see in me? And I was kind of curious for the answer myself, but very matter-of-factly, she said, all the boys she'd ever dated either wanted to put her on a pedestal as a china doll or use her for a doormat. When she asked me what I was looking for, I just told her the truth. I said, I'm looking for someone to run through life with. I'm looking for a partner. And she'd never heard a boy say that before. Now, I was petrified of marriage. And the other thing that was awfully hard was as we were starting to get serious, I knew I had to tell her about my childhood. And this goes back to a comment I made earlier about despising the Cinderella mythology, because it's terrible for girls and boys. It teaches boys that you can't get the beauty unless you're rich and powerful and sweep her off her feet and keep her. And teaches girls you won't be happy unless the rich, powerful boy sweeps you off your feet and keeps you. Every girl I'd gotten close enough to emotionally when I told them about my childhood literally dropped me. I mean, it wasn't a couple months later. It was literally dropped me within a week because I'm not the prince to the Cinderella story. So telling Susan about my childhood was just petrifying, but I knew I had to if there was a chance for the relationship to go further. And when I finished, I kind of looked at her, and she actually had tears running down her face. And I said, you know, if you want to stop dating me, I'll understand. And I still remember what she said. She said, why would I want to stop dating you for a childhood you had no control over? Well, that caught me completely off guard. And then she said, if I'm going to stop dating you, it's going to be because you're a jerk. I said, oh, that's not good news. I can be real good at being jerk. She said, I bet you can. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a rocky courtship. And again, I was petrified of marriage. But uh, we finally got through all those hurdles. And she is very much the lace to my leather. Leading up to his college graduation, Rob considered entering the seminary to minister to children with similar backgrounds. But then he got another opportunity to sell cash registers. 
and he was a little conflicted, but decided to become a Christian businessman. The company that hired me officially hired me to sell, but they're really using me to program and train people on stuff the higher level salesman has sold. And I had a day with nothing to do. I thought, well, by golly, you've hired me to sell, I'm going to go sell. They hadn't trained me in sales, but I figured, how hard can it be? You knock on a door, you say, do you need a point of sale terminal? If they say no, you leave and go knock on another door. I mean, <laughs> to me, it was naively that simple. And so I knocked on this one door, and the guy goes, actually, yeah, we're looking for one. Well, I'd set so many up that I knew what all our equipment could do. I said, well, what do you want to do? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and what's your price range? And he told me, I said, well, I actually have something that might fit you back in my office. I could bring it back to show you the basics of what it can do. He said, that'd be great. And so I went back and just did a little bit of programming and brought it back and brought a sales form and a receipt and showed him what it could do. He said, that's exactly what I want. And I said, how much is it? And I told him and put a charge in for programming and training. And I told him we need a third down. Apparently they only asked for 10% down, but I didn't know that. So he wrote me a check for a third and he said, when can you deliver it? I said, I, can I call you back on that? Because I don't know. So I came back, put the sales ticket and the receipt and the check on the uh, district manager's chair. Well, I get home and I get a call from district manager. He's, he's almost livid. He's got the sales manager in his office. He says, what the blank is this on my chair? I said, I sold a point of sale terminal. He said, who gave you permission to do that? I said, you hired me as a salesman. He said, but you have no training. I said, you got an order with a check. What's your problem? <laughs> and then they both bust out laughing <laughs> and wanted to hear the whole story. He said, you charge three times as much for setup and programming than we normally charge. I said, well, give him a refund. He said, we only want 10% down, you got a third down. I said, what's your problem? They <laughs> started laughing again. <laughs> they said, we're never going to forget this story. <laughs> but, you know, to me, it was just, it was a numbers game. You just knock on enough doors and you find someone who might want your product. <laughs> it wasn't complicated. <laughs> so, like I said, it, it was, uh, I ended up becoming the top salesman for that company and uh, met a young man who'd been very successful, so joined his distribution company as a part owner and see to lose my shirt we both made mistakes so at that point in time I went to the library and I said who makes the most in sales first were vice presidents of sales and marketing well I didn't think I had the social and political skills and I didn't know how to play golf so I bagged that one the number two were manufacturers reps but those guys travel 32 weeks a year and it can take them years to build up enough um, clientele and I didn't want to travel that much and be away from my kids and the third highest in sales were stockbrokers. I said, well, I'm a stockbroker. I've been stock market now for 16 years and never been impressed with any stockbroker I ever had. So I interviewed with all the local stockbrokers. They all offered me a position, but I took a job with E.F. Hutton, never having a clue how hard it was to build this business. 100, 150 phone calls a day, which you can't do today with a no-call list. But to me, again, it was a numbers game. You just keep knocking on doors, making phone calls, just keep pushing through. And, you know, eventually I got to where I started in 1985. And by 1993, I had built up a big enough business that the referrals were coming in so fast, I did not have time to prospect. What I do is a combination. It's more, it's less of sales than it is of service once you've built your book. You, 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 you exceed customer expectations, not so much from investment performance, and mine is good, um, but really genuinely communicating and caring to the client that they're not just a client or customer rather, but that you care about them and their families and what's going on in their lives. And you build long-term relationships. And that's, 
that's the part of what I do that I've really enjoyed now for the last 35 years. And I actually have clients that have been with me from day one, which is fun. When God called me to forgive, I didn't want to, and I didn't think I had it in me. But I knew God was calling, so I, I figured he'd give me the strength. So the first thing I had to do was figure out who were the people I needed to forgive. And I felt it was those three people. It was my grandmother Mitchell for keeping me in the orphanage, her apathy, because I was a social embarrassment to her. My father for his suicide, which I viewed as abandoning me. He could have chosen another path, but to leave me with my mentally ill mother, to me, was kind of inexcusable. And then um, the um, my mother, who just chaos is just the only word for it. Um, so then when I identified the three, I said, I'm going to take the easiest one first, leave the hardest for last, and my mother was going to be the hardest. Not because she was a woman, just because she, she hurt me the most over and over again. Then I took the approach, and I said, what do I need to forgive them of? And that took a lot of thought for each person, cause, and it was different for each person. And I outlined that in each chapter of, of the book, and I've gotten so much feedback from so many people on that. First, they never, they never saw it come and never expected it. But to see me walk through that helps countless many people sit down and work on the same thing. What do I need to forgive them of? And especially when I'm talking to at-risk kids, I said, if you say I need to forgive my father, I'm going to say, of what? Um, and usually I get a blank stare. I say, now, I'm being a little tough on you, but you got to figure out what you got to forgive them for. And it may be many things. And if it's many things, then start with the first one the easiest one, rather, and work your way up to the hardest one last. The, the end of it, though, and this is the beautiful part, the end of it was realizing that forgiving did not free them. Grandmother Mitchell was dead, my father's brain dead, my mother's more or less out of her mind. Forgiving never freed them. They never knew they were forgiven. Forgiving freed me. It took away the anger and the rage and replace it with a peace and a calm and a freedom, a freedom that I did not have to be them. I did not have to be like them. I was not doomed both genetically nor circumstantially to be like them. And I can tell you in all honesty, the anger and rage that I felt towards them has been gone since then. It's never come back. I can tell you that straight up. Forgiving did not free them, it freed me. And you've been listening to Rob Mitchell, and my goodness, he manages over $200 million in individual investments. And although he didn't end up going into seminary, he's still living a life of ministry. Rob spends 20 to 30% of his time traveling the world, speaking to orphans, foster kids, at-risk kids, and adults working with them. And my goodness, so much here to chew. But when God called me to forgive, I didn't want to, he said. But I had to. I had to forgive my grandmother, my dad, and my mother. He urged folks to do the easiest first. And I asked the hard questions, what am I forgiving these people of? And then last but not least, forgiving them freed me. It didn't free them. It freed me. It freed me from knowing that I did not have to be like them. And from that point on, the anger and rage has been gone. Rob Mitchell's story, a terrific American dreamer's story, as always brought to us by our great folks at Job Creators Network, here on Our American Stories.
This is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. We'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. From the donations to the stories, without you, we wouldn't be here today. And we would love your continued support. If you feel so inclined, go to OurAmericanStories.com to give us a tax-deductible donation. With your help, we can bring you the very best stories out there. For more info, go to OurAmericanStories.com. This is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story here. And today we have a special kind of sports story. Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Today, we have her telling her whole story of why she ran it and what happened because she did. Here's Catherine. I was the first woman to actually register for the race and pin on a bib and go to the start line and run the Boston Marathon. There was a a woman the year before named Bobby Gibb who jumped in the race um, unregistered um, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But what is really amazing about my story, sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And that is that when I showed up at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. I was I was with my coach, my teammates, and it was a snowy, sleety, horrible day. And yet all the guys in the race were so wonderful and welcoming to me. And they were excited that a woman was registered and signed up for the race. And they would say, hey, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Go for it. We're with you all the way. And they were extremely, extremely motivating. And it was a wonderful wonderful time until the gun went off and then down the street we went. I was very, very happy to finally be running the Boston Marathon. And the official truck came by uh, and the press truck came by at the same time. First was the press truck and they were honking at us to move over because they were coming through and taking pictures, shooting from the back of the truck as we were running toward them. And the officials um, and the photographers just went crazy seeing there was a girl in the race wearing bib numbers. And they began teasing one of the officials on the official bus, and his name was Jock Semple. He was the co-race director of the race. And they began teasing him and saying, Hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race and she's wearing numbers. I wonder what her mother calls her, you know, Kurt, Carrie, or Kim. And they were referring to the race program because I had signed up for the Boston Marathon with my initials, KV Switzer. But the reason uh, that it incited the official was because they were teasing him about it. And he jumped off the press bus and went down the street after me and jumped on me and grabbed me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to rip my bib numbers off. And my coach was trying to get him away from me and he was saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay, I've trained her. Um, And he swatted my coach away and said, stay out of this. And they came back after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me. And my boyfriend just happened to be a 235 pound ex-All-America football player who was only running the Boston Marathon because if a girl could do it, he could do it. But he came in very handy at that moment because he smacked the official and knocked the official out of the race instead. 
and my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. And we were, we were really, really scared. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know why this official had attacked me. I couldn't understand um, why he was so angry. And, and I began thinking, well, it's probably because he's the race director. He thinks I'm, I'm making a fool of him um, and trying to you know, sneak into the race. When all along, you know, I officially registered because that's what the rules said you had to do. But anyway, um, the whole incident was captured in front of the press truck. And the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world. Even before I finished the race, people around the world were seeing these images of this girl running and girl being attacked by race director and then being saved by burly boyfriend. Because in 1967, that's what people love to think is that, you know, if a girl did something and was a damsel in distress, she was going to get saved by the knight on the white charger. And, and that's essentially what happened. But the whole story was bigger than that. And the whole story was a much bigger one about why women weren't included in the Boston Marathon, why this official was so angry with me for running, what was the problem here, um, and wasn't the road a free and open space for everybody. So certainly it was a moment that changed my life. I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman because the reality is you can't run 26.2 miles. That's the distance of a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. You can't run that distance and stay angry. And uh, through the next few miles, I tried to figure out why this official was so angry with me and and, and, I, and I was really furious with him and I was afraid of him. But along about Heartbreak Hill, about 21 miles into the race, the anger really left me. And it left me with wondering why. Um, and I said, well, that's because he's a product of his time. He's a man who doesn't believe women can do arduous things and shouldn't be allowed to do them for that reason because maybe he believes that, you know, it would make us unfeminine or there was something socially wrong with this. It was just not appropriate for women to be in what was traditionally a man's race. Although, as I said, there were no rules written about this. Um, and I sort of forgave him because he was just a product of his time. But then I got angry at women and I kind of wondered where they were. You know, the longest distance then in the Olympic Games for women was only 800 meters, twice around the track. And it was always assumed that if a woman ran more than that, that something horrible would happen to her, you know, like she would turn into a man or hair would grow on her chest or she'd turn into some behemoth and her uterus would fall out. She'd never have children. I mean, the myths were just unbelievable. And I think all the women believed those myths. I didn't because I came from a family of great pioneers and, and homesteaders and people who had done very, very tough things. Marathon was no big deal for the likes of my family. And so I was surrounded by the images of women who could do anything in my family. And I realized that the women weren't there in the Boston Marathon because they were afraid. They were afraid of those myths that they had heard and they believed those myths. And they didn't have any opportunities to prove otherwise or reinforcement to prove otherwise or you know, belief and encouragement to prove otherwise. And then I realized if I could create opportunities for women so that they could feel as good as I felt, felt very empowered and strong, if I could do that for them, then we could really, really change a lot of things. 
And you're listening to the voice of Catherine Switzer. I started the Boston Marathon as a girl. I finished it as a grown woman. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, that pioneer spirit she was taught, there it was for the world to see. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we left off hearing Catherine Switzer's story of being the first woman to officially run in the Boston Marathon. And it seems almost, well, unthinkable now that we thought these things, but we did. And by the way, lots of doctors thought these things. We return to her story, though, and how she came to run the race in the first place. Running had given me just about everything in my life, and that that I had felt great, I felt empowered, and it had reflected in many other areas of my life, not just running. So by the time I crossed the finish line, I already had kind of a life plan, which was to create opportunities for women in running, and also for me to become a better athlete. I finished that first Boston Marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And I knew people were going to tease me um, and not take me seriously because in those days, in the late 60s, the only people who ran were people who ran well, and or pretty well anyway. Very few people just jogged. And people would say, oh, that's just a jogging time. And that's exactly what happened. The next day, the official himself who threw me, tried to throw me out of the race said, I could walk it that fast. I mean, that was really a horrible thing to say on top of everything else. And the fact is, is that you can't walk it that fast, <laughs> not even close. And, um, and so I said, okay, watch me. I'm going to try to become a good athlete. But let's go back and think about what got me there in the first place. Because I think knowing a person's history and why they were motivated to do something and how and who changed their lives is the, maybe the, even the bigger part of the story. And in my case, I began running when I was 12 years old because I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. And I was a little skinny girl, prepubescent, very nervous about going to a big high school with with grown-ups essentially there. Um, And my father said, listen, if you want to make that field hockey team, you should run a mile a day. And if you'd run a mile a day, you'd be one of the best players on the team. He was really a very motivating guy, very convincing. So I said, oh God, I could never run a mile a day. And he said, sure you could, you could do it right now. I know you could. And he um, helped uh, me measure off our yard. It was seven laps. And all through a Washington DC stinking hot summer, I ran this mile a day in preparation for the autumn when I would go to high school to try out for the field hockey team. And my dad was right when I tried out for the team. It was really one of the best players, not because I had any skills. I mean, I never even had a stick in my hand but because I never got tired and I was in great condition and I could just about outrun everybody. So when I made that team, I felt really, really proud of myself. And so I kept running every day because I felt maybe it was magic. 
I didn't realize it was just conditioning. I thought in my kind of little childish brain that this is pure magic. Well, my little brain was, was actually 100% right because I've been running for 58 years and it is magic. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing about running is not really just about conditioning or, or getting fast or becoming a good athlete. It's really about the sense of empowerment and strength and confidence and accomplishment that it gives you. And so here I was now going into um, my teenage years and going into high school feeling like I had a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. And that was really, really important for kids who, you know, you're facing all kinds of odd behaviors and meeting people, um, you know, and, and, and you don't know kind of how to make proper choices. And if you feel really confident about yourself, it helps you make a decision that's, that's a right decision and not a wrong decision in many cases. And it was phenomenal that also it, it perpetuated the, the concept for me of that if I could do that, that, like a mile a day, I bet I could run two miles a day. If I could make the field hockey team, I bet I could write for the school newspaper. I've always used running as an empowerment tool for myself to give me confidence to take on some of the most insane challenges you can imagine. And things I would never imagine doing or things that have happened to me, um, I've been able to both endure, prevail over, or continue on with even something better because I've had the confidence that the running has given me. It's amazing. In a bigger sense, that's what's the most important part of the story is the transformational experience of running for women and how it changes their lives and helps them um, control their lives in ways they never believed they could. And to take on responsibilities and make decisions that they were denied for many, many years. Because they say, you know, if I can run a mile, then I can run five miles. And then they run 10 miles. And then when they run a marathon, 26.2 miles, they realize they can do anything. When I went to university after high school, I was running three miles a day and I wanted to um, naturally run at university as well. But uh, Syracuse University at the time had absolutely no intercollegiate sports for women, if you can imagine that. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided that I would ask the men's track coach and cross-country coach if I could come and run on the men's team. Now, I never would have had the courage to do that if I hadn't had that base all through high school of running. But I did, and he was very nice, but you could see he was trying hard not to laugh at me. Um, he said I couldn't run officially on the team. It was against NCAA rules, but um, he would welcome me if I wanted to come and work out with the team. And I did, and he was very, very surprised that I showed up. This was the, on the eve of the women's liberation movement. It was the autumn of 1966. And I thought when I went out to run with the men that they would think I was trying to be in their face, that I was trying to you know, show that I was tough and I deserved to be on the team. And I wasn't that way at all, and they didn't perceive that. They really encouraged and motivated me and were very happy to see me and very, very welcoming. One guy in particular was the volunteer coach for the team who was an ex-marathoner. 
Uh, he was 50 when I met him, and I always joke that he was really ancient, you know. <laughs> 50 years old, I was 19. Um, and he felt really sorry for me because all these boys that were running were scholarship boys and they were fast. I couldn't keep up with them at all. Um, I was running three miles a day. They were running like six or eight miles a day. And this guy, his name was Arnie Briggs, had been an ex-marathoner and he was now injured. Bad knees, bad Achilles. So he decided to start just jogging with me. And as we jogged along, he would tell me stories of his ancient running days including 15 Boston marathons. And every night out running together after, after classes, he would tell me another story about the Boston Marathon. And, you know, here I was, you know, I had heard of the Boston Marathon and kind of in the back of my mind, I always thought that that would be kind of a dream goal to one day have. But here I was every day learning about Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny the Kelly the Elder and Johnny Kelly the Younger. All these heroes of the sport became sort of my Olympian gods, if you see what I mean. And pretty soon, as it always does in Syracuse, by, even by late October, it began snowing and the snow was coming down and all the men in the cross country team finished their season and they went inside to run in the field house on the, on the indoor track. And it was so stuffy and, and smelly and hot in there. Um, I said to Arnie, my coach, uh, now he's my coach, my running partner, let's stay outside and run. And he said, have you ever run through a Syracuse winter? You've never been here before. And I said, well, it can't be that tough. Well, you have no idea. I mean, it was like a hundred and what, 90 inches of snow that year. And there were days and nights that it was 30 and 40 degrees below zero. It was absolutely incredible. But I kept hearing the stories of the old Boston marathons and Arnie and I would plow through the snow and plow through the darkness together. And he would tell me all these stories again and again. And finally, one night um, in January, I said, I'm so sick of hearing about the Boston Marathon. Let's just run it. And then this was the, uh, the first big turning point. Arnie, my beloved coach and friend, said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. Women are too weak and too fragile. And I burst out laughing. I said, we are out here running 10 miles in a blizzard in the dark, and you're telling me I can't run a marathon? And he said, 10 miles is not 26. And he said, a woman can't do it. Women are too weak and too fragile. And boy, did we argue. And I finally threatened him with not running with him anymore if he didn't believe some woman somewhere could run the Boston Marathon. And I reminded him that I had read in the newspaper that Roberta Gibb had run the Boston Marathon the year before. And he just burst out in anger. And he said, no dame ever ran no marathon. He just couldn't believe, get his mind around the fact that a woman could do this, this, you know, ultimate distance. And when we come back, you're going to hear Catherine's rebuttal to her friend and her coach and her mentor. And she was going to prove him wrong all by herself. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories.
we return to the story of Catherine Switzer. And of course, she had been told by so many people up till now that, well, women just shouldn't be running in marathons, not certainly the Boston Marathon. And this is her story and her voice. And my goodness, what a voice. Let's pick up where we last left off. Her mentor, friend, and coach, Arnie Briggs, had told her, there's just no way dames should be running in any marathon. Let's hear Catherine's rebuttal. Finally, he said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it, but even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, in fact, if you'd run the distance in practice, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, hot diggity, there you go. I've got a coach, I've got a goal, I've got a dream. Um, And best of all, I've got a running buddy and I'm gonna show him that we can do this. So we trained and trained and trained and trained and oh gosh, I would say it was late March and came the day we were gonna do 26 miles in practice. Um, When we were finishing up the 26 miles, Arnie, my coach was so impressed, he said, Wow. He said, I can't believe it. You look great. He said, I'm, I'm convinced. He said, you know, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed that you can do this distance. And I said, you know, I think we mismeasured the course. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think it's short. I think we should do another five miles just to make sure when we go to Boston that nothing can stop us, that we can, it's, it's, we can finish that whole race. And he said, oh, come on. You're not serious about running another five miles? He said, yeah, let's just keep going. Let's do another loop. So we're running now 31 miles. And in the last mile of this workout, Arnie began uh, passing out during the course of the workout. And um, I said, come on, Arnie, we can do this, we can do this. And he was just gone on his feet and just weaving all over the road. I said, come on, one more mile, come on, come on. I put my arm through his, I pulled him along. I said, come on, come on, one more mile, we can do it. And when we finished this last piece, came across our imaginary finish line. I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing moment because both of us had discovered something really interesting, that the longer it got, the better I got. That when we went out to run eight or 10 miles and the guys on the team would come and run with us, you know, they were always pushing the pace and I couldn't keep up with them. But when it got to 12, 15 miles, we were pretty evenly matched. And then after that, they said, you know, the hell with you guys. We don't want to, we don't want to run any further than this. This is crazy stuff. And really what was happening was that, that as the distance got better, my natural attributes, the female natural attributes of endurance and stamina were really kicking in. The ability to have fat, more fat than men, convert that fat to a fuel source, to stay warm and have still energy over the long haul, really, really paid off. Even to the point where Arne himself, a trained marathoner, couldn't take the distance. And it was an amazing moment to realize that. And now it's something that's changing the way we're looking at female athletes in general. You know. For 3,000 years, the Olympics have been about strength, speed, power. Men men excel in those things, in jumping higher, throwing further, hitting harder, going faster. But when it comes to flexibility, balance, stamina and endurance, women have it all over the guys. The problem is, is that for 3,000 years, we haven't had the opportunity to have sports. 
So, I mean, until very, very recently, in terms of the world's history of sport, it's only been in the last 75 to 100 years that we have been able to participate in, in sports and have sports in competitions and in the in public, etc. So what we're, we're looking at now is really an exciting era. The next 50 years are going to be very, very exciting when sports perhaps and events will be created that you and I can't even imagine um, that take advantage of women's unique capabilities. I would say getting attacked by the official in the Boston Marathon was at that point in my life certainly the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was made to uh, feel ashamed um, and I was second-guessing myself and my worthiness to be in this race. And it wasn't until I had that split second of, should I quit? Should I, should I step out of this race? Am I doing something wrong? It was just a split second of fear where I wanted to really go home to my mother. And then I realized if I did that, nobody would believe that women could run a marathon. Nobody would believe that women deserve to be there. They would say, oh, these women are just barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And I knew then that I had to finish that race. And that was the biggest and most important decision I think I've ever made in my life because it changed the whole rest of my life. People often say, um, oh, Catherine, you were destined for this moment of running this race, of, of colliding with the official, of the photographs of the incident going around the world. Those photographs probably would have gone around the world, but the bigger story is what happened afterwards. Things happen to everybody, but often people don't act on what happens. I acted on what happened. I made the decision to finish the race, even if I was going to finish on my hands and my knees if I had to. And I wanted to prove to the world that women could do this. But it was the actualization then in the race itself, with the time I had to think that I realized that if women only had the same opportunities that I had, an encouraging father, an encouraging men's team, a coach named Arnie, you know, who ran with me and encouraged me. Um, all of these things really helped me and most women didn't have those. So when I finished the race, as I said, I wanted to become a better athlete and I wanted to create these opportunities. Becoming a better athlete was the easiest part of the conversation. Maybe not easy, but simple anyway, because training works. I trained very hard. I trained really hard. Sometimes I trained over 100 miles a week, twice a day workouts, a 27 mile run every Sunday, and I got to be pretty good. In fact, I won the New York City Marathon, and I was second in Boston with a two hour and 51 minute marathon performance, which even by today's standards is excellent. And for a long time, it was an Olympic qualifier. But I realized then that I realized if I could do that, how much talent existed out there that wasn't getting the same opportunity or didn't have the same drive or the same confidence to do that kind of um, training and that kind of work. So I then decided the most important thing is to get women official into events. A group of women, uh, myself included, worked hard at Boston to get women official in Boston. We were successful with that in 1972. And then we organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park, the mini marathon. And that was such a success. I realized that women 
maybe wanted their own events so that they wouldn't be intimidated by being around stronger, faster people. And I began organizing uh, and getting sponsorship for a series of women's races around the world, ultimately becoming known as the Avon International Running Circuit. And this became a career for me where eventually we organized 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And the data and statistics that we got from those races allowed for the marathon to be included in the Olympic Games because the Olympic Committee um, uh, had the data on performances, the data on international participation, and with sponsorship money, we were able to get some doctors to write up reports showing that women actually were better at endurance events than power events. So with this evidence in hand, we went to the International Olympic Committee and were admitted into the Olympic Games as an official Olympic event for the first time in 1984. And you're hearing Catherine Switzer, and what a story. It just keeps getting better. Her push, her drive to, well, find out what women can do. What were the real boundaries? We're about to find out more. Catherine Switzer's story here on Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Turn to Our American Stories and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and you'll get stories just like this one. Five of our best ones each week right into your mailbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll get you our five best stories of the week. Sign up for our free and terrific weekly newsletter. And we're returning now to Catherine's story. She went on to do much more after that 1967 race. We left off hearing that Catherine had successfully gotten the marathon to be a part of the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, California. There it is. She's about to go into the tunnel. Now, the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen. So they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is. And I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight. When Joan Benoit Samuelson won that race, the American from Maine, when she came into the stadium, 90,000 people, you know, stood on their feet and screamed and cheered. It was utterly, utterly fantastic. It was something to me that was um, the ultimate in acceptance. But more than that, it was a television broadcast to 2.2 million people that showed convincingly that women could run heroically, strong, deserve to be in the Olympic Games, and deserve their equality. It was an absolute game changer, absolute leveling of the playing field in running. 
Everybody knows how far 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is. Everybody understands distance because they've walked it or they've ridden a bike over the distance or driven it or even ridden a donkey in some countries. And when people from around the world saw women running and running so well, they all understood what that meant. They meant it meant that they had underestimated women's capacity for achievement. Um, and even heroism. So that to me was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social and intellectual acceptance and this was about our physical acceptance. The Olympics are the ultimate really in sports recognition and now we were running the toughest event uh, in the highest forum uh, just like the men. And there isn't a tougher event in the Olympic Games than the marathon. So that to me was about the physical equality. And that's why it was to me com comparable to giving women the right to vote. One was about intellectual and social acceptance, the other about the physical acceptance. He has done it. When you think then about the future, which I think about all the time now, um, you say, wow, we've achieved that. The rest is going to be easy. Well, the rest is never easy. Even now, all these years later, there are women in the world who are not allowed to go out of the house alone, not allowed to have their own passport, not allowed to drive a car or get an education. All the old myths still prevail, and women believe them because they have no opportunity to believe anything else. You only know what's around you. You can dream of some things, but you really only understand what's closest to you. So with that in mind, who would have ever imagined that my old bib number, 261, the number that the race official tried to pull off of me way back in 1967, suddenly became this magic number around the world, quite, quite virally, and it was really amazing. Uh, became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. People were sending me pictures of themselves running their first race, and on their front they would have their official bib number from, you know, the Tokyo Marathon or the New York City Marathon or whatever, but on their back they would be wearing 261. And when people started sending me pictures of their tattoos, I began to take this really seriously. I didn't know what kind of movement was occurring from my old bib number. So I got together with some friends of mine and we decided, what are we going to do with this? Do we create a business? And actually what we decided to do is to create a nonprofit. We created the nonprofit 261 Fearless as a way of empowering women around the world to take the first step in running or even walking. Because we know if they go out and walk or run and have somebody with them who believes in them and encourages them, they can overcome so much else in their life. Because as I said before, running itself is transformational. And if they have the courage to take that first step and we can help give them the courage to take that first step, they too can become empowered and aspire to so much more in their lives. Running can change everything. It has already around the world. We've created a social revolution. Um, in North America. There are more women runners now in North America than men, and these women are not running to be Olympic athletes. These women are running because it empowers them. And this movement is going globally. 
And we are hoping that 261 Fearless will reach places, we're working very hard on this, to reach places where women have no opportunities whatsoever. And they're going to be difficult to reach in some places and difficult to engage, perhaps. But you know, running has done it before and it'll do it again. You know, you're never too old, you're never too slow, you're never too big, you're never too unathletic to put on a pair of sneakers and let running, walking, jogging change your life. I've seen it a million times. And every time you go out and you watch a marathon, you will see people who you couldn't ever imagine uh, could do this event, 26 miles, 385 yards. There are people without arms or legs who are blind, people in wheelchairs, people who push themselves along, people who take a day or two or even five to cover the distance, but they do it. The capacity for human achievement is absolutely astonishing. One of the greatest moments in my life happened April of 2017, which was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary. And no other woman has ever done that. There are plenty of 70-year-old, 80-year-old, even 90-year-old women who run marathons, but nobody has run one 50 years after she first did, which is just testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago. But to go through the streets of Boston 50 years later and to have all of those thousands and thousands of spectators cheering for you, many, many hundreds of whom knew my story and had big posters that they held up, said, go Catherine, go 261 Fearless, go women, equality for women, was really, really phenomenal. And it was amazing how easy the race was. Every mile got faster for me. And when I came across the finish line in 444, I was really only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. And I love telling this story because I just really want to encourage people to realize you're never too old and you're never too slow to get it back, to feel that sense of health and optimism, and to realize that the future of good health for all of us really may be staying active all your life. People always ask me about Jock Semple and what happened to him and did he ever apologize? Well, frankly, no, he never apologized. But after five years, um, we became best of friends. And people are astonished to hear this. But here's the point. He was a man of his time. And when we became official in the Boston Marathon five years after I ran in 1972, he suddenly became very aware. He had to become aware of the fact that women were taking running seriously, that we loved running. And that's what he saw finally. And he came up to me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon the following year and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. He was a Scotsman. And he said, come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety and turn me to these TV cameras. And the photographs of Jock Semple and Catherine Switzer making up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon was a photograph that, that really spoke volumes about how people can change. Um, and to me, how important forgiveness is. Because I really forgave Jock Semple when we came over Heartbreak Hill in the 1967 race. You know, I realized he was a product of his time. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. I visited him, in, in fact, a few hours before he died. And people say, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, yeah, you know, life is actually too short not to forgive. And over the years, we had become good friends. And I wanted to see one last time and say goodbye to a man who completely not only changed my life, but changed millions of women's lives. 
So he was, in fact, a guy who helped the women's running movement probably more than anybody else in spite of himself. And what a story and what a voice, folks. Sometimes the worst things in life, she said, become the best things in life. And my goodness, that Jack Semple tackled her and that she forgave him and became friends, a testimony to how to live a life. What a story, one of our favorites here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, again, go to Our American Network. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Our five best stories will come to you, and you'll feel better about being a human being, better about being an American. Stories like these, they're everywhere. We'd love to hear yours. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catherine Switzer's story, the story of women and sports in America, here on Our American Stories.